What is the state of the Miami real estate market? That's the question we're going to answer today and put under the scope. I'm Omar DeWint with the Miami Real Estate Podcast and your host here, joined by one of the most powerful and influential uh, women figures in all of Miami real estate, Alicia Cervera La Madrid, uh, managing partner of Cervera Real Estate. Alicia uh, started the industry, started in the business in 1980, and since then has uh, really revolutionized the neighborhoods from Brickell to South of Fifth, Edgewater, and uh, downtown Miami. So we're happy to have you here. No one better than to help us uh, put the state of the market under the scope. So Alicia, thanks thanks for joining. Excited to be here, happy to be kicking off this wonderful project and looking forward to hearing great things. Exciting. So um, this is our first episode, inaugural episode of the Miami Real Estate Podcast. So we're, we're kind of excited. We're, well, we hope you bear with us listeners and, and viewers as we get our bearings, but I, I think you'll have fun. I think you'll learn, uh, get some insights and, um, and yeah, so let's just get started. So Alicia, tell me we're here in sunny Miami, right off Brickell Avenue in the thriving uh, financial district of, of Miami. Uh, what is the state of the market right now? Can you paint the big picture for us? for our real estate professionals that, that are listening and viewing and tell us, you know, sort of where are we at right now in, in, in the evolution? You can ask me this question almost any time and the answer is gonna be the same. When you talk about real estate market in Miami, the first word that comes to mind is exciting because it's always exciting. The next word is ever-changing. As our city changes, and as you know, it changes very, very quickly, so does our real estate market. Some of the times we're trying to catch up with our city, and other times the city's trying to catch up with us. But it is never stagnant, and it is never dull. Okay, perfect. So what, um, you know, what, what does the first half of, of this year tell us, of 2018? Uh, what, uh, were you surprised by anything, and sort of what activity are you expecting for the rest of 2018? Well, I'm surprised every day when I come to work. Again, it has to do with how vibrant and dynamic our city is. So for 2018, I think the, um, the good news is that we're beginning what I'm going to call the second cycle after 2008-2009 with the recession. So we're through that first cycle. I think we saw the bottom of that at the end of 2017. We, some might argue it was the beginning of 2018, but what I'm seeing is a market that is on the move again more mm. actively than it was uh, at 2017 and perhaps even the end of 2016. So walk me through those three cycles, I guess, because I, I think there's, as a consumer, um, you know, maybe there's some confusion or or thought that, uh, you know, the crash and, and is the crash going to happen again? But how, how has, you know, what have we learned and, and how have those cycles uh, changed? I think we learned a lot, um, not just in Miami, but in, in certainly in the United States and probably most of the world. We learned a lot about the um, instability of institutions that we thought were unfailable, if you will. And uh, in Miami, because we were such a young city, we had a, a huge advantage in being able to modify our model tremendously and result in a lot of development in a very quick time because we're still growing very, very quickly. So at the end of the, the last cycle, at the end of 2008, 2009, what we learned is that uh, leverage can be very tempting, but it's not always very good. Mm -hmm. And that uh, we also learned that Miami has the ability to absorb much more inventory than anyone could have imagined. Okay. That in this town, if you build it, they will come, and they come quicker than one may think. <laughs> that, that's just a fact in this town. And we also learned that we were able to finish our projects so that mm -hmm. our developers truly delivered. Mm -hmm. Our banks failed us, 
And our buyers failed us mm -hmm. because they were not able to come to the closing table either because of lack of loans, because the banks went away, mm -hmm. or because of lack of security in the marketplace in general. Mm -hmm. We reacted very quickly to those hard felt lessons and painful lessons and reinvented our model. So when we started the cycle in 2009, 2010, when I got that first phone call saying, Alicia, I think we're ready to build again, and I said, we are? <laughs> really? And um, they said, yes, we're ready to build because our occupancy rate is north of 90%. So if we don't start building now, we're not going to have enough housing for the people that continue to move mm -hmm. to the city. And the city continues to grow at a very uh, fast pace. And in fact, that occupancy quickly went from just over 90 to just under 100%. It went wow. up to about 97, 98%. So when people started to cut you off, people think that you know there's too much inventory the reality is that um what the, you know the buyers own the property maybe they have it for sale but there's a renter uh there you know um currently what what one yes what in the short answer is yes what happened um in 2008 2009 is that the buyers who ultimately wound up buying these units paid cash mm -hmm. there was no financing available and as a gateway city and an international city we were able to attract a lot of buyers that came in with cash and what they found was the perfect buying condition mm -hmm. they had a city that was very undervalued they had a dollar that was very undervalued so they came in with strong currencies around their own country to buy into a very inexpensive product in a city that they recognized was a global city and was going to do nothing but go up. So rather than come in, um, rather than sell our inventory to hedge funds that would come in and buy 100, 200, 300 units at a time, we actually sold our units one, two, three mm -hmm. units at a time. So it's a very diversified set of owners. No one here is controlling the Miami market. It's thousands of people that came in and bought, as we used to say, onesie twosies. And now they own their onesie twosies. They own them for the most part free and clear. Mm -hmm. And then different decisions are made based on the personal needs of these individuals. Some have moved in, some have rented them, some have gifted them to kids, some have sold them over time. And the, the thing that was critical and the question that we kept asking ourselves over and over and, and that the rest of the world was asking is who is going to live in these units? And the reality is that they're full, and that's key. And one of the things that I learned was that while sales are important, occupancy is critical. Mm -hmm. Because if something is empty, it is not going to appreciate. So when a city is full and there's demand and people are pushing that demand because mm -hmm. they need a place to live, then for sure appreciation is eminent. That's a fact. So occupancy is key. I think the numbers back that up. Uh, last week we were at Brickell City Center for uh, the Miami Report. Uh, and I, th I think the number was uh, appreciation was 230% in the last 25 years, an average of 9%. Uh, so obviously the occupancy is, is supporting that. Um, yeah, do you want to say something about that? or? But yes, I think the, the appreciation, to have a sustained appreciation of sure. just north of 9% is amazing. Um, the occupancy rate is so strong in the mm -hmm. city. And what happens that confuses people is that uh, since buildings start when the market is ripe, you have several buildings starting at the same time, mm -hmm. which means you have several buildings delivering at that same time. Mm -hmm. And those several buildings can result in, I don't know, pick a number, a thousand units being delivered at one time. So when somebody looks at that snapshot, you know, on June 27th, there was a thousand units available on the market. It sounds like a lot. 
But what they don't realize is that they weren't available on June 26th because the buildings got their TCO on June 27th or within months of each other. But it's very close and certainly within six months of each other. And the question is, how long does it take those thousand units to absorb? Mm -hmm. So let's let's say that it takes five or six months. That's a huge absorption rate. And what we were shown is that Miami in 2010, 11, 12 was absorbing about 2,000 units a year. So when we started building this time in 2009, 2010, we were way behind the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the ball, way behind the ball, which is why our occupancy has never gone up, even as we're delivering these buildings. Today I finished a meeting with some developers that are finishing a rental building. It has 350 units. They haven't gotten their TCO yet, mm-hmm. which means people can't start moving in. Sure. They're hoping to get it in a week or two. They have over 200 units pre-leased. Wow. It's a wow. So that's the magic of our city. It's not only people that are moving from abroad or from the Northeast or from the Midwest or from wherever. It's also people who live in Miami currently mm-hmm. that don't like commuting for two hours. Right. So they, they're moving into the city. And once they get here, they fall in love with the urban lifestyle. And so they figure it out. Well, and today in the Herald, there was that, the story about families. Now right? it's families in downtown. So how, Lots of families. It? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Every single picture was with a stroller. I'm going, what? They're discriminating against me. I'm way past the stroller stage. You know? um, but it was a, it's a very interesting story. And that trend is certainly going to continue. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that as lots of demands and pressures being put on the city to grow our elementary schools and our middle schools mm-hmm. so that there's more and more options for all of these stroller kids to stay in the city so let's let's um i want to talk about something that you just touched on that gets a lot of sort of negative attention i think in the news and that's talked about cash buyers so uh we've seen a lot of negative headlines let's say about dirty money what um what is what is your take on on you know dirty money essentially and how it uh factors into miami real estate i think that there's always been dirty money in the world, right? Mm -hmm. People make money in lots of different ways. I think there's way more clean money Mm -hmm. than there is dirty money. And I think that a lot of attention is being put on dirty money, as it should be, Mm -hmm. by the agencies that are responsible for making sure that that good money finds its way in and dirty money finds its way out. And so um, I'm glad that's happening. I think it's a question of national security to avoid terrorism. I think it's a question of fiscal responsibility. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, however, every time we get asked the question, it's about dirty money. And I'm concerned that they're throwing out the clean money with the dirty wa- money. And that it's getting very, very difficult for people who are earning money around the world to be able to move their money around the world. And that if you're moving money, you immediately become suspect. You're almost guilty until proven innocent. And I think it's a very slippery slope. We're also in a world where um, there's not not everyone is a good player. And the bad players are sometimes running the countries. So I think that the United States also has a responsibility to help the good people that are being ruled by bad actors Mm -hmm. and helping facilitate that. So I hope that the people that are in charge of preventing the bad money from getting in and keeping the bad actors out also take into account the good people that are working very, very hard and that fall victims to bad governments and oppressive governments that are are stealing from them, essentially. And they're trying to figure out 
how to do with their very hard-earned money mm -hmm. what they want to do with their money and to protect themselves, their assets, and their families. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a story that has two sides. Of course. And I think the, the biggest side, which is the hard-working, clean money side, is not told often. Of course. And so uh, let's talk a little bit about, to close out the uh, cycles conversation, uh, where so where are we right now uh, in at in, in the stage of the end of uh, the the second cycle since the recession? Uh, where do we find the market? What is what do you see? What's moving? What's not moving? Well, if we're going to say just for definition purposes that the first cycle ended in uh, 2008 2009, right. then this one we're going to say is and as uh, has ended. I'm going to say 2017 mm -hmm. uh, 2018. And I think the most important thing uh, is to understand that these two cycles did not look anything alike. Mm -hmm. So what happened when we started the cycle that ended in 2008 or 2009 was completely different than what happened when we started in 2009, 2010. How so? Well, the, the first thing is that um, the buyers that were in the market uh, all closed cash. So when my, my new buyers would come and say, Alicia, how do we know that we're at the bottom of the market? I would look at them and I'd say, because you're standing on dollars. There's no leverage under these buildings. The people who have bought these units have come in and have paid cash. And when you're, staying on, when you're standing on hard cash, you know you're at the bottom of the market. So we went into this cycle that started then in 2009-10 mm -hmm. on a cash-based market which means there was really almost no risk for foreclosure because not only was it cash-based, but it was fully occupied. So that meant for all of these people that had bought these residences, they were either living in them or they could rent them, and they were almost always cash-flowing positive because their only carry was taxes and maintenance. So it was a very strong position from which we started. In addition to that, the development model changed because there weren't banks rushing in to lend anyone money based on the last model, right? They, mm -hmm. were, they, they still could feel the scars from what had happened. So we created a new model in mm -hmm. Miami. And rather than sell units with 20% deposits, we said, no, that's not happening anymore. We went actually started, right? went up to 70. Wow. When we started the cycle, I was getting 70% deposits from buyers. So these buildings were basically being built with the deposits from the purchasers. The developers weren't getting any loans to buy land. So there was cash bases on the land and cash in from the buyers as they put up their deposits. The deposits slipped to about 50% within the first two, two and a half years. With that 50% basis, they were still very under leverage, very little risk in the construction cycle. And what really happened is that the risk was spread. Now the developers had a risk because they had a lot of money in the game with the land and the soft costs. The buyers had a risk, which was important because remember that at the end of 2009, the buyers walked away. Mm -hmm. They only walked away really from a 10% deposit because yep. they got the other 10% back. So the buyers this time now had a lot to lose because they weren't walking away from a 10% deposit. They right. were walking away from a 50 or a 70% deposit. So they had much more skin in the game. So when everyone has skin in the game, you have to finish the game. And that's, in fact, what happened. We had a, a city that was much more developed because we did build it, and we did finish those buildings in 2009. And in fact, we started a lot of infrastructure projects for the city that have since been finished. And I think that if this cycle between 2009 and 2017 or 18 in history is going to be remembered 
for anything. It's going to be remembered for the completion of the PAM, of the Frost Museum, mm -hmm. and of, um, of Brightline. Three major infrastructure projects and the tunnel and the completion of the dredging of the port. Mm -hmm. Most cities... The tunnel being the Port Miami the, uh, tunnel the, for... Yes, that took all the 18-wheelers off the highway. Mm -hmm. Most cities would have done that in 50 to 100 years. We That's did true. that in 10. It's amazing. So I think that when all of the rest of the noise goes away, mm -hmm. we have these major institutions which have helped complete our city. And I think the Marlin Stadium was fi was finished in Marlins, that time. Marlin, so Brickell City Center. Brickell City Center. So these are billion, multi-billion dollar projects mm -hmm. that were all finished. And all of that was possible because of the blood, sweat, and tears that culminated in 2009. Because now it was built. It was sold, mm -hmm. it was closed, and guess what? The city was collecting tax dollars. Wow. Yes, it was a big wow. So we had the tax dollars and we had the impact dollars. So we had the money to continue building our city. So now, as we're entering this other cycle of 2017-18, it looks very differently. It's a much more mature city mm -hmm. where the other day someone asked me, Alicia, what do you think is the next institution that needs to be built in Miami? And I had to stop and think about it. I, go, I was like, wow, you know, we have the performing arts. We have all of these things that are done. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the next one should be. But then Beckham came and answered the question. We're going to build a <laughs> soccer stadium, right? <laughs> so we're now one of, I think, five or six cities in the U.S. to actually have all five major sports teams. Isn't that amazing? I mean, who would have ever been able to say that? let alone when I arrived in to Miami, but even 20 years ago, no one would have thought to, to dream that. So we're starting this cycle very, very differently from where certainly the cycle that ended in 2009 started, and even the cycle that started in 2009, 2010, because we're starting this as a much more mature city. The end of this cycle that I'm going to say was in 2017, the beginning of this year, was a very soft landing. I'm not sure that anything ended. Everything just slowed down. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing now is, again, an acceleration. But we're not seeing it take off like the rocket that it took off. Mm -hmm. So I think we're seeing Miami as a city respond more maturely. Okay. And I believe that that's going to be what defines not only this cycle, but every cycle moving forward in the city now. So then what does that mean for, let's say, the customer, or let's say if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the agent, I'm the associate, uh, I have a buyer coming in, let's say, from uh, out, of, out of town, out of the country. What is your advice uh, to the agent for their buyer? How do they look at this landscape, and what does it mean to, to said buyer? Well, I, I think that we've outgrown the wild, wild west. Mm -hmm. So don't expect to get rich quick. <laughs> It, it can happen. There's pockets of opportunities in every market. Sure. And there's still emerging markets within Miami that are going to provide some interesting opportunities to to have more appreciation than that 9%. What is the biggest emerging market right now for you? Aha. Uh -huh. I have to throw that in there. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Um, look, I think there's, um, there's great opportunity in Buena Vista. Okay. I think there's a lot of opportunity on the river still. I think there's great opportunity the in Little Havana, the Miami River. Mm -hmm. A Little Havana, I think, has a lot of opportunity as well. So there's still areas mm -hmm. that I think we're going to see tremendous opportunity. I think downtown, too, that donut, that hole in the donut in downtown it still needs to be filled. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of interesting things, and around that it will go. I think um, any location next to a metro station or the future metro stations figured out mm -hmm. is going to be opportunity for great growth. 
because that will happen. We are going to have more massive transit, and that is going to become areas of concentration and tremendous growth. That is a good point, and I know the, is it the Bay Line? No, no, the underline is going to be, it's a project to beautify yes. under the metro. Under the metro. So the underline will, will cause some appreciation, and if it has any correlation to what's happened with the uh, High Line in Manhattan, mm -hmm. the appreciation is enormous. Right. So that's a, that's a beautification project and an enhancement project. However, here, Again, once again, because we're such a young city, imagine what would have happened in Manhattan if you built a new connection, a new rail line. Mm -hmm. So when Miami connects, for instance, with Doral, with rail, there's going to be stations along the way. Mm -hmm. And those stations are going to drop down in the middle of what will become an emerging neighborhood. Because mm -hmm. there's going to be something around it, but whatever's around it is going to become more dense. So there's going to be these pockets that are still available in a young and growing city. However, across the board, we're not going to see these huge booms mm -hmm. or these horrendous busts. I think we're going to see our market perform more like major markets in major cities around the world. So more like Manhattan, more like London, more like Paris, more like Hong Kong, more like Tokyo. Mm -hmm. it's, it's more mature. Now, we are starting at a much lower base. So if I'm talking to a buyer, which I did, in fact, the other day, and they said, what do you think? I said, I know. Miami's going to get more expensive. Do you doubt that? And so they looked at me and they said, well, uh, no. And I said, well, uh, no is correct. Right. Miami is going to get more expensive. Now, is apartment 305 going to get more expensive? I don't know. Right, you don't there, have the there, A lot of that, you know, we have to wrap our head around apartment 305 or 3005. But as a city, we know it's going to have an upward trend. And with that upward trend, ultimately, most things get pulled up. And that's the, the big underlying message to buyers that are coming into this town. If you want to live in Miami, it's not going to be cheaper in 10 years. I can almost guarantee that. That's a good message. So let's talk about, let's talk about, um, let's look back at last year and some of the biggest moments uh, of 2017 uh, as we, um, as we, let's say, end this cycle. One of the, the biggest things that we saw was uh, Hurricane Irma came and hit us. And going back to the building, all the buildings that we completed, I think we saw that the, the, the buildings were built very well, right? What, what, were your, what were your takeaways from Irma? Well, that Mother Nature comes knocking on your door, you better be ready. And that it's, uh, it's never predictable. And the reality is that Mother Nature comes knocking on all kinds of doors. And doesn't matter where you are on the planet, there is a door. Mm -hmm. So you can't uh, run away from the door because <laughs> another door will be waiting. You right. know, it's like the, the running away from, from the ghost of death, you know, <laughs> it'll find you. And that's what happens with Mother Nature. So clearly, I think we were all um, very encouraged sure. by the fact that our buildings performed so well. Now, they should have performed well mm -hmm. because Miami for a long time and Florida for a long time has set the standard for uh, storms. And certainly since Hurricane Andrew, right, we've had, we, yeah, that code set the standard for the country and the world. 
So um, we, we should have performed well, and the good news is we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter's residence is at Brickle, Brickle House. Mm-hmm. Right down the street. Right down the street. And if, if you'll recall, that was the epicenter for the flooding right. in Miami. For those of you who saw anything on the news, you thought Brickle was underwater. Right? Completely underwater. And as I'm looking at it, of course, all my kids left, and my husband and I stayed because that's what parents do, right? So... Um, the next morning, I drove to Brickell thinking I'd have to swim to her apartment. <laughs> and, oh, what a surprise, that the water had completely receded. Mm-hmm. There was a puddle, but it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't a foot of water. It was a couple of inches of water. Right. And her building had a mechanism of a water wall that had been built around the outside. So the water literally went up and it went down. Mm. And I walked into the building and even the elevators were working. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. It was quite outstanding. You know, they were mopping up the water. People had trenched in right. with their wet feet. And, you know, there was a bit of a mess. And the wind blew some stuff in. But everything was working. Yeah. And it was quite outstanding how how the city had performed so well. Absolutely. And so as I went from one office to another office to another office, I found pretty much the same thing. Mm-hmm. That the water had come up and the water had receded and that the damage had been quite frankly, minimal. Yeah. And even in the buildings that were older, because my son lives in an older building where there had been some flooding in the garages, the water was being pumped out. And while the elevators weren't working, they had electricity, which unfortunately I did not in my mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. And um, the people were there and living there. And within 48 hours, they had dried everything up because they had the equipment that they needed for remediation. Because sure. they already knew what they needed. Well, I think, and I think that's interesting. I want to touch on that for a second because you know, fun fact, we did that research gathering right. in the in the days after the storm, and thanks to First Service Residential, they gave us uh, a lot of data. I think on about 350 condos in South Florida, Palm Beach, uh, Broward, and Miami, about 93%, I think it was, had electricity back right. within 72 hours of the storm. Which is pretty impressive when you consider that I think seven days afterwards, a lot of the single-family homes were still waiting for. (laughs) You were one of them, right? right? So, but I bring this up to say because you mentioned the buildings were prepared, the HOAs were prepared, and one of the biggest objections I hear all the time is, "Well, the condos have such high HOA fees, right?" But this is part of the. And and honestly, I think for most people that are telling you that condos have high HOA fees, they haven't done the numbers. And by that, I mean they haven't compared what it costs to live in a house mm-hmm. with the level of service that you get in a condo mm-hmm. and it does to live in a condo. Because when I moved out of my condo and moved into a house, mm-hmm. my homeowner's fees went way up because I was now paying for all of those services personally. So the pool guy, the gardener, the pesticide guy, the termite guy, it just goes on and on and on. Right. So the HOA fees are, in fact, very inexpensive when you compare it to living in the same right. quality a facility home and you're paying for those things yourself so and relatively speaking i think that's important because now we have we've established that miami real estate is not getting cheaper so we have buyers that are interested when you get these questions it's good to have that um in the back of your mind and i think it's also important to note what a great job um our governor did rick scott rick scott was amazing shout out to rick scott big shout out and (laughs) also to to all of our politicians i remember that that next day um, I was in our office in downtown Miami at yep. 50 Biscayne, and I ran into a couple. They were a French tourist. And so I went outside. I said, how are you doing? They said, oh, we're staying at the, the Marriott. We just, I said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry that you're visiting our city in the hurricane. He says, you know, we're really happy that we were here. Hmm. 
It says, because when we were here and we were preparing for this hurricane, we heard all the politicians, blah, 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 and we're going to do this and we're going to do it. And we, my husband and I looked at each other and we said, ah, oh, just the way it is in France. He said, and then we woke up today and realized it wasn't just the way it is in France, that your politicians did what they said they were going to do. And, you know, we're so used to complaining about our politicians, right. and we know there's always something to complain about. But it really took me back how these foreigners had observed mm -hmm. how our city had responded, and in fact, how our citizens had responded by, you know, because politicians can't do anything if the citizens community, don't follow yeah. suit and the community doesn't roll up its sleeves and get involved and do what they're supposed to do. So I think it's also very important, and they, and they also said, if you're going to have to go through that experience of God knocking on your door, mm -hmm. there's no better place to do it than the United States of America. And within that, Florida held a very high standard. So let's talk about another sort of major objection that, that our uh, agents and, and Miami realtors will encounter. It relates to water as well. I think you know where I'm going to go with this one. And that's sea level rise, right. rising. Um, what, what is your take on that? How do we uh, address that objection? So I don't want to oversimplify it. Of course. So I'm going to start by saying that uh, our city is taking it very seriously. And there's a lot of effort being put towards resiliency. Mm -hmm. And so by that, they're, they're looking at it at all levels. From the universities, they're looking at it at that level. There's uh, missions that are being sent to Holland to investigate how it's being held there. Uh, they're holding summits, and you know they're getting together with leaders from all around the world to analyze and to study the problem. They're investing in infrastructure projects and putting real money into better drainage, and, and all of those things are being done. However, now to simplify it, for the rest of us mere mortals that are not involved in solving the global warming or the sea rise problem, right. we have a very simple decision to make. Which is? Do we want to live on the water or not? Okay. Because if we want to live on the water, we need to fully understand that this is not a Miami problem. This mm. is a global problem. Right. So if you want to live on the water, you have to be prepared to deal with the problems that living on the water brings. Just like if you want to live in the middle of an area where there's earthquakes, you have to be prepared to that. live with an earthquake. And that's why I say that, you know, nature is nature and it exists everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that's the bottom line. And that's a, a, a decision that only a buyer can make. Right. Well, I think it well, well said. Uh, let's, so on a more positive note, uh, now in, in the wake of recent federal tax uh, reform, putting the cap on deductions, I think at 10000 10, uh, a year, we have a lot of uh, people from states like New York moving to or looking to move to tax-free states like Florida. What is? What do you think the the real is is? Are they coming to Miami? Do is Miami uh, a top of the list? Yeah, Miami's top of the list for the Northeast. Miami's top of the list. Uh, the, uh, the reality is there was a huge love affair with Miami already, mm -hmm. and the love affair goes back many many generations. Uh, it's always been a city that uh, the Northeast and New Yorkers in particular, or not, although not exclusively, have loved to come down and vacation and take advantage of the summer and the sun and the fun and the great weather and the great air and the great light and all mm -hmm. that good stuff. Now two things have happened. The first thing, and I think it's the most important thing, is that Miami has become a city that people who are used to living in cities consider enough of a city to move to. Okay. Because... They're not moving to, I don't know, pick a city in the middle of Florida. They're moving to oh, Miami. <laughs> They're not moving to Ocala. <laughs> They're moving to Miami. Right. 
mm-hmm. and they're moving to Miami because we have uh, jobs, mm-hmm. we have art, we have culture, we have great dining, we have great shopping, we have great schools. It is a complete city. So it starts there. Now you take this complete city, and then on top of that you layer a very compelling uh, state tax structure and people start moving to your city. Mm-hmm. And that's why Miami is a huge beneficiary of this new tax, this new federal tax law. So, and, and to, to wrap it up here, what um, are By there- By the way, nothing against Ocala. Yeah. I love but, Ocala, it's a great place. <laughs> just wanna make sure we point that out. If And if you're from Ocala and you're looking to come to Miami, we hope that- uh, You'll call us. us. Love Ocala. So, um, and final thoughts, um, what, any other big picture or small picture things that you want to, that you want to say about the state of the Miami market right now in this year? I think it's going to be a year of great opportunity Mm -hmm. because um, a lot of people aren't sure. So for the people that pull that trigger, Mm -hmm. they're going to get in early. Right. So this year is going to offer a lot of excitement and opportunity for those buyers that have been waiting. Mm -hmm. Jump in now. Okay, so we, uh, we you heard it here first, and uh, this was, I think we're going to call it there. We're going to wrap it there. Sounds hope good. you had fun. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed listening, and uh, and come back soon because we're going to have some more great content. So thanks, Lisa. Well, well, thank you, and congratulations for getting it all together. Very exciting, and yeah. very happy to have been your first on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it was great, thank you. All righty. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we certainly enjoyed making it. We hope you will come back. We've got some more great content dedicated to informing, intriguing, and inspiring Miami real estate professionals. Where can you find us? We're on the podcast store, wherever podcasts are available. That's iTunes, of course. We're also on Podbean, Spotify, Audible, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can even ask Alexa about us. Go ahead and visit Cervera.com slash blog. That's where our newsroom is located. We've got some more great content there as well, market reports, and more. You can sign up for our newsletter there. Connect with us on social at CerveraRE or send us an email, Miami Real Estate Podcast at Cervera.com. We would love to hear from you. So from all of us here in Miami, where the future is always bright, until next time.